Well, good morning, Blue Water. Good morning. Really glad to see you this morning. Thank you so much for being here. Dads, happy Father's Day. Special welcome to you. And anyone joining us online, we want to say welcome to you as well. Uh, Did you know that for hundreds and hundreds of years, generation after generation, before the advent of the compass or the sextant, there was one thing, and, and really one thing kind of alone, that was vital for sailors and mariners as they uh, tried to navigate on the, the vast oceans. You know what that one thing was? The, you nailed it. The one thing was the North Star, also known as Polaris. Now, the North Star is actually very interesting. As a matter of fact, I kind of think that it's actually an evidence of the fact that there is a God and that he loves us because one of the brightest stars in in the, the night sky is actually located such that as our earth spins on its axis, it is, is located perfectly so that while everything else is rotating, it stays the same, uh, steady. And so once you, once you learn how, once you know how to identify which star is Polaris, you always know which direction is north. You can always get your bearings because in a universe where everything is in flux, everything is moving, everything is spinning, there is a constant. In our series through the book of Philippians, the Apostle Paul has been saying um, one thing over and over and over again. And that one thing is that we can uh, rejoice. We can be joyful because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. And so as we start to move towards wrapping up this book, it's actually really hard for me to believe that next week is going to be the last week in our series through the book of Philippians. Um, I I have just, listen, the Lord has used this book in tremendous ways in my life over the past uh, number of weeks that we have been walking through Hebrews. Nope, uh, not Hebrews. That's the last one. Philippians. Philippians is where we're at. And uh, I want to invite you to open up to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. We're starting in verse 2 this morning. Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 2. Whoever the guy was that wrote in the, the chapter and verse references, those, those aren't original. Those came later. And he botched it. So chapter 4 should have started in verse 2. And by the way, it's going to be, um, these first couple verses, it's really sort of interesting. It's kind of weird. Paul starts naming names. Look what he says. uh, Philippians chapter 4, verse 2. He says, I plead with Euodia, and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, to help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. What an interesting couple of verses. And I have to tell you, it absolutely cracks me up that these verses got into the Bible. Okay, we don't know much about Euodia. We don't know much about Syntyche. Uh, what we do know <clears throat> is that um, they, they labored uh, uh, with Paul in the gospel. Um, I think that if you think back to uh, Pastor Scott on week one of Philippians, in Acts chapter 16, when uh, Paul and his companions first got to Philippi, they went to... Um, the river to find a place to pray, and they they met a number of women there. I think these were two of those women that were part of that group. They 
appear to love the Lord. The, the problem that they had does not seem to be doctrinal. The issue that they had does not seem to be, uh, uh, it, it wasn't a, 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 you know, a personal issue, that, a behavioral issue. Because we know that, you know, you look through what Paul wrote in other places, he had no problem calling people out on those issues. So we don't know exactly what the deal was, but Paul writes it in the Bible. He doesn't say, there's two ladies in Philippi, you know who you are. He actually names them. Cracks me up. I think it's hilarious. Um, even in the early church, there were disagreements among people. Even in the early church, there were fights in church. We don't know what the issue was. Maybe it was the color of the carpet. Maybe it was the who was in charge of the kitchen. We don't know. It's amazing to me the things that churches fight about and that churches split over. We don't know what the issue was, but there was something going on here. And I think we can learn a couple things from these ladies and from these verses. <clears throat> Pardon me. <clears throat> Excuse me. The first thing that we can learn is that not every issue that comes up in a church is a life or death, death issue. Not every issue that comes up in a church is uh, uh, worth splitting the church over. Some are. Some are. But not all. Uh, for, for issues that are real, top-tier, significant, uh, essential issues, we'll split the church over that if we have to. I've been talking, um, having conversations with a guy who used to come to Blue Water for, for a little while. Uh, he's been trying to convince me that the, uh, that the Trinity is not a biblical doctrine. And um, <clears throat> so I, I, in my conversations, I've said, man, you need to repent of that, and you're not going to feel welcome at Blue Water. Well, not, not that you'll not feel welcome. You are welcome, but you're not going to like it here very much, uh, because this is something that we're not going to bend on. <laughs> This is, this is an essential. We're, we're not, we're not uh, listen, we will divide over that. But over non-essentials, over things that are not top-tier issues, we have to be ready to be gracious with each other. We have to be ready to sometimes take an L for the glory of God, right? We can't win every single discussion. We can't win every single argument. The other thing that I think we can learn about this or learn from this is that sometimes even faithful, godly people get it twisted. Sometimes even faithful, godly people need to be corrected. Just because someone has been uh, faithful in the Lord, just because someone has been a good mentor to you does not mean that they are always right or that they always have it all down. That's why we need to always take everything back to the scripture. We need to always bring everything back to not someone's opinion, but what does the word of God say? So how do we apply this to us? Are you going to be a part of this church? I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to be this church, but you're here. So we'll talk about this church. We're not always going to get our way. I don't always get our way. Sometimes we need to, for the sake of the glory of God and the good of his church, sometimes we need to take an L in a discussion or in an argument on secondary non-essential issues. Okay, let's look at verse 7. Nope, uh, verse 4, sorry, 427. In verse 4, here's what Paul says. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. 
And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. You can tell that Paul's a Baptist preacher because he likes to repeat things for emphasis. You can tell that Paul's a Baptist preacher because he likes... And this is a bell that he's been ringing again and again, and we can't miss that as he writes this, as he says, rejoice always, what are his circumstances? Well, we know if you've been with us through this series that his circumstances are that he is in chains. He is in prison. He is literally wearing chains, chained to a Roman centurion. His liberty has completely been taken away from him by an unjust government. He's living in destitution on the generosity of his friends. We see in another letter that he's actually writing to his friends and saying, hey, if, uh, send me some paper, send me some parchment and uh, my cloak. Because he can't even stay warm. Physically speaking, he is living in in basic destitution. And yet, what, what does he say? Rejoice in the Lord. I will say it again, rejoice. How crazy is that? And listen, if Paul, in these In this context, in these circumstances, if he is able to say rejoice, by what means would we say, well, boy, life is really hard for me. Life is really challenging for me. I don't know if I can rejoice in my circumstances. Really, what's our excuse? Because, listen, I know that some of us are walking through some really hard things. But if we stack it next to what Paul's going, you know, walking through as he writes this, it really, most of these things don't hold a candle. Rejoice. Always. How crazy is that? And what we learn is that we can, yes, we can rejoice in the Lord even in dif- difficult circumstances. Now, it may be helpful for some of us to note that um, in this passage, there are a couple of Well, grammatically speaking, they would be imperatives, okay? And an imperative is a command. Now, if you are a Christian, when there are commands in the Bible, we we perk our ears up because these are things that we need to uh, take special notice of. Now, here are a couple of the commands. One is rejoice always. The second one that I want to especially point out is where he says, don't be anxious about anything. Whoa. Both of those things are seem equally difficult to put into practice. Don't be anxious about anything. What is the the thing that we find so difficult in our society? It's that so many of us are given to anxiety. Don't be anxious about anything. Does that seem hard? Well, he didn't say it was easy, but the fact that both of these things are commands, what that means is that we can choose to put them into practice. I didn't say it would be easy. But since they are commands, we can choose to put these things into practice. Do you know what I think is the real significant difference between someone who, on one hand, can choose to rejoice in every situation versus someone, on the other hand, who, um, uh, who, who can't... Uh, um, uh, help but, but um, dwell in their anxiety. You know what I think the major difference is? And I'm becoming more and more convinced of this as time goes on. 
I think the major difference is a God-centered view of God and reality on one hand, and on the other hand, a a man-centered, a human-centered view of God and reality. Because if, if I am the center of what is going on in my universe, if it's all up to me, man, that's a lot of weight on my shoulders. And I can see how, how, how passing the anxiety off in that situation would be really, really hard. But, but, if there is a God, a sovereign, a constant around which everything else revolves, if there is a God who is love and who is jealous, who is jealous of, um, who, who is jealous of the glory that should be his that he will not allow another to get. If there is a God who holds the universe and planets and nations and rulers and you and me, if there is a God, then I actually feel pretty okay passing off the responsibility of running the universe onto him and running my life onto him so that I don't have to wear it. And I think that's where the beginning of choosing not to be anxious about anything starts with a God-centered view of everything. So if um, we can choose not to be anxious, how do we go about doing that? Well, look at verse six because uh, verse six tells us, and here's the key. We replace our anxiety with something else. Look at verse 6. It says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer, and when he says prayer, that is the uh, discipline that we're talking about. Okay, That's the, the, the category of what he is talking about here. So don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition. Petition is the type of prayer that we're talking about. So what we're doing, remember, we are coming before the almighty, constant, sovereign of the universe, and we are making requests. We're not demanding. I, I hear some Christians who, who seem to think that we can demand something from God, and God has to do it. What? No. No. How silly. We petition. We make requests to him. We don't demand Uh, We we don't um, uh, order, we are not expecting him in the negative sense of the word to do exactly what we want. So uh, in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, no matter the outcome, when we make our requests to God, we do so with thanksgiving, no matter what the outcome is. How can we thank God no matter what the outcome is? Here's how. If he is who he says he is, if he is love, then everything that happens will be the best thing for us, even if it doesn't end up well for us in this life. Because if it doesn't end up like we would hope in this life, guess what? There's a life to come. Paul wrote this not knowing whether he would come out of his arrest alive. And you know what? He didn't. He was beheaded for the gospel. And even suspecting that, he could write, do not be anxious about anything. Because his trust was in a God who, um, even if they kill me, 
there's better to come. Even if they kill me, God still got it. So in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, by the way, um, I, I learned this, uh, I think it was from Neil a couple of years ago, and I've, I've always thought this was really cool. Um, God always answers yes when his children pray. So when we come and, and, and petition God with a request, God always answers yes. He answers yes to our petition, to our request, or he answers yes to what we would have asked if we knew as much as he does. <laughs> and I've always thought that's pretty fantastic. With prayer and thanksgiving, uh, making our, uh, sorry, in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, we present our requests to God. So we can choose to replace worry and anxiety with rejoicing and trust. We can trust the Lord. We can. And when that happens, what is the result? Well, look at verse 7. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Literally, what this says is the peace of God will mount a guard over your heart, which is the seat of your emotions and your mind, which is the seat of your thinking. How great does the peace of God sound? For those of us who are anxious, how great does a little bit of peace sound? Now, the peace of God does not promise that our circumstances are going to change, okay? As Paul is writing this, his circumstances did not change. Again, it ended up with him being beheaded for the gospel. But in another sense, everything changes when we learn to trust the Lord. That's when everything does change because he's got us. I've said a number of times over the past little while, you'll probably get sick of me of hearing me say this, that the thing I think that the Christian church got the most wrong over the past couple of years is that we did such a bad job of communicating to an unbelieving world that for a Christian, dying is not the worst thing. We are not scared of death. Do you remember what Paul said in Philippians 2, just not too many weeks ago? To live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. And I, I'm sorry to say this, that so many Christians that I saw over the last two years were just as scared of death as everyone else. For us, dying is not the worst thing. More than that, for us, for those of us who are in Christ, we don't love this world or the things of this world so much as to shrink from death. You know how the gospel changed the Roman Empire? Christians who are not afraid to die. And listen, I have been doing this long enough. I have walked with people that, as a pastor, who, who were suffering um, long enough that, that what I've learned is that it's actually really, really evident when someone starts to experience the peace of God that passes 
or that transcends all understanding. It's actually really obvious. And others might look in from the outside and say, oh, they're running on adrenaline and they're going to crash in a little bit. Just wait, just wait. Well, maybe sometimes, but not always. There are absolutely times, and you can see it when people start to experience the peace of God that transcends all understanding. I've experienced it. Not enough. <laughs> um, and I probably need to just push pause and, and make sure that you understand that uh, Pastor Tim is not up here saying that he's got all this stuff nailed down, okay? I, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that I have always got it right when it comes to choosing to rejoice always. I'm not saying that I've always got it right when it comes to choosing to, uh, uh, to, to not be anxious about anything. I don't I mean, the Lord's working on me, and I'm better, doing better at that now than I did a couple of years ago, but I certainly don't have it down Perfectly. Okay, we got to keep moving. Look at verse 8. He says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. And the God of peace will be with you all. What do you think about? What, what, what do you fill your mind with? What do you meditate on? What do you chew on? What is it that occupies your thinking? Is it social media and um, Netflix? Because here's the thing, if, if, if what fills your mind and occupies your thinking is social media and Netflix, I promise you, you will not be able to put aside that anxiety. You absolutely will not be. Maybe your thing isn't social media and Netflix. Maybe your thing is uh, MSNBC or Fox News and CNN. Maybe that's what you fill your time with and you keep coming back to that. You, you realize that these media companies, all of them, have figured out how to monetize your anxiety. You know that, right? Um, so, so what they do is they deliberately feed you information to, to um, make you anxious so that you will continue to get eyeballs or clicks or whatever it is. They have figured out how to monetize your anxiety. You, you understand that, right? And too often, we don't have the wisdom to turn it off and walk away. Really interesting book called Hate, Inc. I um, forget the guy's name that wrote it, and I disagreed with all of his presuppositions and all of his conclusions. But it was so interesting. He, he traced out how media now does not work in our day and age like it did back in like Walter Cronkite. It doesn't work like that, like it did back then. The media knows that they have tribes that they appeal to and they deliberately make us anxious and they have figured out how to monetize our anxiety. It's wicked. And we need to be able to turn it off. That's why, what's well, one of the reasons why you don't see me on social media much anymore. You don't see me on Facebook at, hardly at all. Uh, because I just at some point decided you're not gonna manipulate me anymore and I'm just done. And I cannot tell you the relief, <laughs> I cannot tell you how much better my um, spiritual health, my mental health has been since making that decision. I, uh, I commend it to you. It's just interesting that the way that the uh, world 
in the way that Christianity handles um, stress and anxiety is, uh, is very, very different. You see, the way that the world ha- handles anxiety is they actually, they start with something small and then they increase that. So, so um, for those that are anxious, they would say, um, what you need to do is you need to stop and you need to breathe. You just need to take a breath and then count to maybe 10. And once you have that under control, once you have your breath, once you're able to breathe, then we'll start working on the next thing. And maybe the next thing might be um, formulating some white space in your thinking. And I'm not even really saying that this is necessarily all that bad of a thing because we all need kind of like white space in our thinking, right? Like if we're always going all the time, that's not healthy either. And so, so once we get the breathing down and once we get the... Um, the white space in our minds down, then we might move to something bigger. We might move to your diet because our physical and emotional and spiritual selves are all connected. You can't bifurcate these things apart. And once you get that down, maybe we'll go to uh, getting, you know, daily vigorous exercise. And the point being, they start small and they get progressively bigger and bigger. But that's not the way that Christianity deals with anxiety. Christianity deals with anxiety by starting with the big things first, by starting with the cosmic things first. And once you get this in place, once you get the cosmic in place first, then you can apply that to all the small things. Then you can apply that to all the minutia of your life. Then you can replace anxiety with being joyful. I want to show you something. We're going to bring the lights down a little bit, and I want to show you a picture. We'll bring the lights down a bit. This is a picture, a time-lapse picture of Polaris. Do you see Polaris right in the middle? It's not that Polaris doesn't move at all at all, but just, just barely a little bit. And you can see all the stars and all the constellations that are spinning and moving around. And yet, there is a constant. And just like Polaris, for those of us who are in Christ, because of what Jesus has done, because he is our constant, because he is the constant, we can choose to replace anxiety and rejoice. We can choose to rejoice even in suffering. Listen very closely to these words.
Imagine that most of you know <clears throat> that uh, Bobby is the front man of a worship collective here in Sarnia called Backyard Worship. And you guys, you wrote that song, you dropped it. Was it a week ago today you dropped it, right? Yeah. Pretty cool. So you can jump on iTunes, you can jump on Spotify, you can buy it and support Bob. I commend that to you. I think that would be really good. 
When I heard that last line, uh, I thought, boy, that is the synopsis of this passage, this sermon. I will choose to rejoice in suffering. What kind of choices are you going to make this week? Maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking, boy, that sounds so foreign. I don't know Jesus, but that just sounds like a completely foreign thing. I would love to talk to you after. I would love to tell you about how you can know Jesus. I would love to tell you about how you can get the cosmic in place first so that you can choose to rejoice even in suffering. Father God, thank you for your great love for us. Thank you that we can, because of, like, not through anything that we've done, not through anything in us, not by, like, measuring up, uh, stirring up the power in us, um, not through that, but because of what you have done, we can choose, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to replace anxiety with even rejoicing, even in suffering. Lord, thank you for the promise that you do all things well that you, the judge of the earth, will do what is right, and that even if, like Paul, we get our heads cut off, that all will be well in the life to come because of Jesus. I pray that you would help us to continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, to you, Jesus Christ. It's to you that we give all glory, both now and forever. Thanks, friends. You're loved.